go ahead and take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. This is Ephesians uh, chapter 4 as we continue our sermon series through the book of Ephesians called Identity Matters. Um, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about Christianity. And one of those misconceptions is that Christianity is for good people. And one of the evidences that I, I see that that mis misconception is out there is that sometimes people who have lived really awful lives feel like there is absolutely no way that they can be a Christian. And, uh, and yet Christianity is not some sort of system for good people and designed to help them to stay good people. Instead, it is for bad people and it proclaims a bold promise that in Christ they can be new people. It's one of the primary themes of the book of Ephesians, uh, as the Apostle Paul has been teaching us that at one time we were spiritually dead, we were hostile to God, we were enslaved to our sinful desires and to Satan, and on the fast track to receiving God's holy wrath for our sins. In other words, we were really bad people, uh, but God being rich in mercy, has breathed new life into our spirits. He has awakened us to the things of God, and we have received salvation by God's grace through faith, and it's all a gift from God. And the vertical reconciliation between God and man leads to horizontal reconciliation between man and fellow man. As the gospel has torn down the dividing walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile and, uh, and a new humanity, a third race has been created, created a spiritual race that is so united that Paul calls this group one new man, uh, which is the church whom um, who Ephesians chapter 2 calls at the, at the end of that chapter, God's household and God's holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That was the big picture that Paul gave us of God's redemptive purposes described in chapters 1 through 3. But what does that mean for our lives practically right now? Well, that's what chapters 4 through 6 are all about as Paul shows us how these truths are to be lived out in our personal lives and especially in our local congregations. And in this last section of chapter 4, Paul has been using a clothing metaphor to help us get, get the point. He writes in verse 23 that being a Christian means putting off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And that makes sense because, again, God saves not good people, but bad people. And that means that we all have worn the old, dirty, worn-out, tattered clothes of sin and of selfishness and of pride and lust and greed and, and covetousness. And now we're learning to dress differently. Uh, we are to, as Paul says in verse 24, uh, to put on the new self or the new man created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. We are to wear clothing, and again, we're speaking metaphorically here, we're to wear clothing worthy of sons and daughters of the Father. Now, just to make clear, this is not how uh, about how to become a Christian. Uh, you, you become a Christian by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Instead, what we're talking about now is the privilege and responsibility of one who's already a Christian. And you have been given access to the divine wardrobe, if you will, which is full of clothing that is fitting and appropriate to your new identity as a son and daughter of God. 
And for the past few weeks, the Apostle Paul has uh, been giving us a tour of the heavenly closet, so to speak, uh, reminding us of the old garments that we're to put off and showing us our new garments that replace them. So, for example, in verse 25, we're told to throw away the old clothes of falsehood and lying and put on the clothing of truth and integrity. In verse 26, we're commanded to take off the decaying rags of unrighteous anger and to replace them with the beautiful clothes of righteous anger and a uh, reconciling spirit. And in our text today, Paul is going to introduce us to more clothes in the divine wardrobe that are reflective of God's character and should be reflective uh, in our lives as well. And uh, and if the material last week was both helpful and hard hitting to some of you, as, as I heard, I think many of you are going to find what's coming to be equally so. And, and so let's take another look now into that wardrobe, uh, the divine wardrobe. We're in Ephesians chapter four. If you have your Bibles, you can look with me at that chapter. And uh, we're just going to pick up right where we left off last time. Uh, we're going to start in verse 28, and we're going to read on down through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth, and I pray that you would sanctify us in your truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm uh, looking back at my um, uh, the, the video feed here, and it's still really jumpy, so I hope that's not too distracting to you. Maybe you, maybe you don't even see what I see, but uh, we're gonna keep we're gonna keep going anyway. Um, if it is distraction distracting, just don't look at the screen and turn up the volume. Uh, so the Apostle Paul has already been telling us to cast aside various aspects of the old clothes, and now he brings us to something else that we're to do away with. As Paul urges you to put off stealing, and that's my 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 first observation this morning. Put off stealing my first point in verse 28 paul says let the thief no longer steal now it's not hard to imagine when you consider uh if if you're a, a poor person in ancient first century ephesus with no path to upward mobility and no welfare system like we have today in america and you can imagine the temptation to steal would be great and some may have even found it more profitable to steal than to just labor all day for hours on end for just pennies. And so for some Ephesians, stealing, dishonest gain, had just become a normal way of life. In fact, it's interesting that Greek, the Greek construction in verse 28 seems pretty clear that the stealing wasn't just something uh, in the distant past, but it was a practice some of the Ephesian Christians were still engaged in. And so Paul here isn't saying, hey, you stopped doing that a while back. Instead, what he's saying, this needs to stop right now. What you're doing needs to stop immediately. 
And and so as we read that, we might wonder, okay, well, how's that how's that relevant to me? I'm not going around stealing stuff. But we have to first realize that the pull to engage in dishonest gain has been present in the human heart from the very beginning. You think about the original satanic temptation in the garden, and it revolved around Adam and Eve taking something that didn't belong to them, uh, taking something that was prohibited. The impulse to selfishly acquire things in an underhanded way is so prominent that the prohibition against stealing made its way into the Ten Commandments. And the devil himself is described as one who comes to steal and kill and destroy. And it's interesting that stealing is put in the same sphere as killing and destroying. But it's not surprising when you just think about it for a moment and consider the heinousness of stealing, because to steal is to selfishly gain something for yourself at the expense of another person. It's not just stealing is not just about the object that is stolen. Stealing dehumanizes and degrades and tramples the other person, which is why if you've ever been a victim of theft, you know very well the sense of humiliation and, and personal violation that comes with that. And when you think of it that way, you can see why stealing is such a hateful, evil, satanic activity. And again, you may say, well, I agree with all that, but I, but I still don't understand what this has to do with me. Uh, maybe I stole a candy bar from a store when I was a kid, but I've never done anything like that uh, again. And if that's the case, then praise God for that. However, I think I think we need to expand our vision in regards to stealing and recognize that this temptation comes in many other ways besides shoplifting or breaking and entering. Now, over the years, I've talked with many Christians and I've examined my own heart and I've seen how this temptation uh, of, of stealing, how this can come out in a lot of different ways, well, even subtle ways in our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, I've known Christians who have uh, pirated content off the internet, uh, downloading music or movies or video games that they didn't pay for. I I've heard that there's sites out there where you can get all kinds of content for free that wasn't meant to be free. If you're involved in that, that's stealing. How about the workplace? Your employer pays you to do a job. And, and, and so do, do you spend some of your time just engage in activities that have nothing to do with your job, but you're still on the clock? You just maybe surfing the Internet aimlessly, uh, playing solitaire on the computer or just staring at the clock, just just killing time. Listen, y'all, I have been guilty of that in 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 the past. And, and I was convicted uh, of those sorts of things. I, I remember having a job in the office once and, and, and it wasn't here. It was, it was, a, it was a, a job a while back and, uh, and just, you know, being in the office. And, yeah, I was doing things that, that were kind of getting me by, but also just, just doing some things uh, that I wasn't really, you know, paid to do. And, and, and your boss did not pay you to do these other activities and, and you're taking the company's money off a of false pretense. That's dishonest. Uh, what about if you're shopping and, and you get more change back than you're supposed to? Do you just pocket that because it's their mistake? Uh, my wife recently ordered some products, and, and when the package came, she got double of what she paid for. <laughs> Woohoo! I mean, we hit the jackpot. What do you do in a situation like that? 
Now, listen, this company makes millions. It's no skin off of their nose. They'll never miss those couple of items and, and they'll never know. Uh, well, well, Dana, what did she do? She, she, my wife, she put on the clothes of the new self, the new man, and, and she informed the company and is sending the products back. Uh, now, now, that probably seemed weird to those people, but Christians are weird. We dress differently. We aren't to look like everyone else. We're to look like God. What about, what about taxes? Are you honest with your taxes? Are, are you not reporting certain things that you know the government requires you to report? Are you a bit shady in the information that you provide so that you can get the maximum benefit possible? I'm not talking about, about, about taking advantage of, of legal means. I'm talking about shady, underhanded dealings here. And then you may say, well, I hate taxes and, and I hate the IRS and I've worked hard for my money. Well, is it your money? <laughs> I'm stepping on toes here, I think. Jesus said, whose image is on this coin? And they answered him, Caesar's. And he said, well, then give Caesar the things that belong to Caesar's. G give to Caesar what he asks for. Uh, by the way, the context of that discussion that Jesus was having had to do with taxes. Well, that all doesn't sound very American, but it sounds very biblical. I heard a story once about a, a federal agent um, and, and his job was to, he, he arrested people who violated tax laws. And the thing that saddened him the most was that the one group of people that he arrested often were pastors, pastors, preachers of the gospel. Uh, one of the most heinous things about stealing is, is not only that it hurts his fellow man or that it's unsubmissive to the governing authorities that God has put over us, but one of the most heinous things also is that, is that the Christian who, who, who steals is insulting God. You think about this. Remember your new identity as a Christian. You're, you're not just some person who's been rescued from hell. You've been adopted. Remember Ephesians chapter 1, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. You have been adopted by God the Father, who is a kind and merciful and generous God who takes care of his children and provides for them everything that they need every day to do everything he has called them to do. And so stealing, in addition to just raw greed and, and selfishness, uh, reflects a mistrust and unbelief that God will provide for you, that, that he's actually a good father. Now, author of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 5, be content with what you have. In other words, be content with the things that have been legitimately given to you by God. You don't need to keep grasping for more and more. Why is that? Because the author of Hebrew writes, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So put off the old worn out garments of stealing. But that's not the end of the story, because remember the, the pattern that Paul has been showing us in this section of Ephesians. Yes, we're putting things off for sure, but, but they are, those things that we're putting off are always meant to be replaced by, uh, something, uh, by putting something on. Uh, so it's not enough to stop stealing. It's not enough to say, hey, this isn't going on in my life, so I'm in the will of God in this area. No, no, no. If that's all you're doing, you're, you're actually missing something, which leads to my next point. Put on hard work and generous giving. So you're going to put off stealing and you're going to put on hard work and generous giving. Paul again says in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Uh, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. 
So instead of stealing, the believer is to work and, and to work hard, as the, as the Greek word connotes working to the point of weariness and exhaustion. Now, that, that's going to maybe rub somebody the wrong way because some, some people really shun hard work. Some people are, battle uh, laziness. And some go as far to think that work is a result of the fall of man and sin in the world, as, as, if, as if Adam and Eve before sin are just kind of lazily lounging around the garden all day long eating berries. And that caricature is false. When God created Adam, he, di he didn't just set him down in the Garden of Eden with a, with a big 60-inch TV and a Nintendo Switch. Have fun and knock yourself out. Instead, the very first thing God does with Adam upon creating him was to put him to work, to care for the land, to begin to exercise dominion over it. The, the garden wasn't just going to bow down to Adam. Adam's going to have to roll up his sleeves and get to work. So whether you are a landscaper or a mechanic or a salesman or a law enforcement person or a delivery driver, or maybe you're not the primary breadwinner, but you're, you're a stay-at-home mom. That's work, by the way. That's hard work to the point of exhaustion. You know that, moms. Uh, and, and that's freeing up that primary breadwinner to earn income, regardless of where God has placed you in life, to the degree that God gives you strength, and he gives all of us different measures of strength, to the degree that you can, you work. And, and you do it to the glory of God and to provide for you and your family's need. Bible uh, Bible says elsewhere, if you don't work, you don't eat. And then someone might ask, well, okay, well, what about those who can't work? It's a really good question. And Paul's about to deal with that. He writes again, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Doesn't stop there. Why, why, are, we, why are we doing honest labor with, with our own hands? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now that is very important because the purpose of your hard work and laboring to the point of exhaustion is not meant only for your sake. Uh, the Bible never commends hoarding, just the raw accumulation of stuff. I'm not talking about responsible savings. I'm talking about hoarding, just, just piling things up more and more and more for just yourself. Bible never tells you to do that. Instead, the purpose of your hard labor is not getting for the sake of keeping. The purpose is for getting for the sake of giving. So it's not enough to stop stealing. If you're, if you're sitting around patting yourself on the back for not stealing, uh, th th then, you're, then you're falling short. And, and, and it's not enough just to, just to work hard and, and earn income. If that's all that you're doing, then you're falling short of the biblical biblical command. If, if you're if you're doing those other things, but you're not generous with your money and your possessions, then you haven't put on the clothes of the new man. Paul Paul says the people of God, the church, are to be marked by generosity to the needy. Now, in a broad sense, of course, the church should try to care for the needy just in general. But in the narrow sense, and I, and I think first and foremost, the Apostle Paul is thinking about those in need within the, the fellowship, within the church. Remember, again, the context of Ephesians. This is not written to a bunch of, uh, a bunch of individuals. It's written to a, a congregation. And, and in Ephesians, Paul has been emphasizing the familial nature and unity of the church. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all family 
were all related, not by racial blood ties, but by the blood of Jesus and related in the Holy Spirit. And Paul expects us as a church to be looking after one another. It brought me such joy. There was a there was one family in the church who reached out to me not long ago and said, hey, Deemer, our income hasn't been affected by COVID-19. And, and we know that there might be others in the church who have been negatively impacted financially. And, and we want to set aside some money for any needy family in the church. Let me tell you something. That is absolutely awesome. Just that just gave my heart such joy. That family has captured the vision of what Paul is getting at here. You don't get so you can keep you get so you can give. That's the purpose. After you've provided for your own household, give, give to families in need, give to ministries you trust, give to your local church to support it. Giving is to be a part of the warp and woof of the Christian's lifestyle. Now, I love how Paul explains this important principle of financial stewardship in 2 Corinthians 9-11, where he explicitly answers the question, why does God enrich you? Why, why does he give you stuff? Why does he give you resources, whether they be a little or a lot? Well, he answers that in 2 Corinthians 9-11. He says, you will be enriched in every way. Now, why? He, he doesn't say you will be enriched in every way to live in self-indulgent comfort and luxury. No, no, no. He says you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So did you catch that? God is enriching you on purpose, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of joyful, cheerful generosity to those in need. Now, again, if you have identity issues where you aren't viewing reality through the grid of your sonship in Christ, you're going to have a tendency to be stingy. Because you're gonna you're gonna be afraid that God won't provide for you, and so so then whatever you get, you, you gotta keep all of this for for yourself and, and kind of maximize your possessions and 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 self protect in that way. But but Paul addresses this issue also in the scriptures when he writes to the Philippian church. He he gives thanks uh, to them for giving him a generous gift while he was in prison, and then he encourages them by saying in Philippians four nineteen that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You get the point? Paul, Paul is thanking them. He says, yeah, you're supplying my needs. Thank you for that. But God is going to supply your needs. He's going to enrich you as you give. And again, we know from 2 Corinthians 9-11 that he enriches for the purpose of further generosity. That's to be the lifestyle of the child of God. This is to be the new garments from the divine wardrobe that, God, that God's people are to don daily a clothing that images something of the extreme generosity of Christ, who, though he was rich, 2 Corinthians 8 9 tells us, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And of course, there, by rich, he means rich in a treasure much greater than money and houses and cars. He's talking about being rich in God. So we're to put off stealing, we're to put on hard work and generous giving. And next, Paul tells us that we are to put off corrupting talk. Put off corrupting talk. He says in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Now that word corrupting literally means, <coughs> excuse me, and it literally means in the original language, rotten or putrid or filthy. 
That word was used to speak of rotting fish, rotting fruit. You ever you ever smelled rotting fish? And some of you are thinking, Deemer, I can't I can't stand the smell of just normal fish, let alone rotting fish. I remember once being at a um, at a seafood restaurant, and I was trying swordfish for the first time because I heard it was really it was really good. Uh, I can't remember. Maybe it was my wife who was telling me that. I can't remember. Oh, this is really good. You gotta gotta try it. But but something was wrong with this fish that came out. It was old. It, it had been like sitting out for for a long time or something. I, I'm getting even a little queasy just thinking about it right now because it tasted and smelled like garbage. Like literally somebody took that fish out of the dumpster and put it on my plate. It was so disgusting. It was so foul. I just could not bring myself to eat it. And I needed him to take that plate away immediately. Now, now Paul is saying that we need to have that kind of repugnant disgust and rejection for foul, corrupting speech. And, and what is that? Well, certainly that includes obscene language, profanity, uh, but really it's more than that. In the next chapter, Paul talks about crude joking, just, just filthy talk, sexual innuendo, uh, the kind of garbage you see on sitcoms that we're supposed to laugh at and be entertained by. But it's even more than that. Uh, Kent Hughes describes this kind of talk as the decay-spreading conversation that runs others down and delights in their weakness. It's language that belittles, that makes fun of. Uh, Christian teenager, I want to challenge. I want to challenge you with this question: uh, could, could your friends, your peers, your classmates at school tell that you are different, that you're a Christian? through how you talk? Or, or do you just talk like everybody else does? When you're with unbelievers, is there anything uh, that, that comes out of your mouth that uh, distinguishes you from the world? Or do you just join in in the mocking, in the tearing down, in the crude joking, in the backbiting gossip? Grown-ups, adults, how about you? When you're out in the world, in the break room, at, at work, in the office, uh, throughout your day, engaging with unbelievers, what's coming out of your mouth? What, what about what about your conversations on the internet, on social media? Uh, there, there is something about social media that just gives us this sense of freedom to unleash corrupt talk in a way that we would never do it face to face, even sometimes tearing down fellow Christians for the rest of the world to see. And, and, and how about this? And here's what for some of you might be the biggest challenge. How's your speech at home? You see, for some of us, when we're out in the world, we're on pretty good behavior with our, with our tongues. And for some of us, when we're on, on social media, uh, we're, we're, we're doing pretty good because we, we just know a whole bunch of people are watching us. But, but when we get home and when the door closes and the outside world isn't watching and we start engaging with those closest to us, our husbands, our wives, our children. When that happens, the putrid, rotting filth comes out of our mouths. The, uh, the verbal punches, the belittling names, the, the put-downs, the demeaning insults. What, what, what some of us, I wonder, does that maybe fly freely behind closed doors? Now, this kind of stuff tears apart homes tears apart churches, 
destroys our witness to the world. We're, we're to dress differently. We're to wear the divine wardrobe that is reflective of the power of the gospel to change and transform us. The power of the gospel that unifies Christians in the home and in the church. There is something about our speech that should communicate those realities. And if you struggle here, and, and y'all, many of us do, you're not alone, believe me. <laughs> if you struggle here and you want to change, remember that there is nothing that comes out of your mouth that isn't indicative of something that's already in your heart. If there is filth coming out here, that means there's filth in here that needs to be dealt with because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Praise God that God is the best heart surgeon in the universe. And as we turn to him, he can help us. He who began a good work in you is determined to complete it. You know, if you struggle in this area, a great prayer for you. Uh, Psalm 141.3, you may want to memorize this. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth and guard the door of my lips. It's a great prayer to, to add to your toolbox. But as good as all that is, it's not enough. Rejecting corrupt talk is only the first step to change. Because the Christian life, again, isn't just about putting off. You need to intentionally replace the old garments with something new. And which leads to my next point, put on gracious speech that builds up. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. It's not enough to, to not let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. We're also to intentionally speak words of grace and encouragement to people. And this is very important because some people, while they may not speak discouraging or corrupt words to anyone, uh, they never, on the other hand, never really go out of their way to seek people out for the sole purpose of blessing them with their words. Paul says this, this new family, this new people that God is creating and uniting together uh, is to be characterized by gracious speech. How often are you intentionally thinking as you go through the day, you know what, as I open my mouth and speak, I'm going to bless people. I'm going to speak words that build up. I'm going to speak words that give grace. Most of us don't naturally think in that way. That's not even on our radar. We just go through our day and whatever comes out of our mouths comes out of our mouths. And there's no intentionality, no thought about it at all. And yet Paul says that our words are to be a vehicle and a demonstration of God's grace. And, and those words are to build up others. And so ask yourself, can people say of you what Eliphaz said of Job? Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. Job 4.4. 4. Could that describe your speech to your spouse? Does it describe how you, how you speak to your kids? Kids, does it, does it reflect how you speak to your parents? Does it reflect how we speak to others in the church? This, this, is, this is convicting stuff. This is stuff that, that's convicting me. I, I, I think generally the Lord has, has helped me to, to set a guard over my mouth so that, that, that corrupting words aren't, aren't coming out. But, but how intentional am I uh, uh, in the home and in other relationships to, uh, to, to use words in, in, a, in an upbuilding kind of way? 
Instead of being a rotten, corrupting influence, Colossians 4, 6 says that our words should always be gracious and seasoned with salt. I like that. You think about what salt does. It, it preserves. It guards against decay, against rot. Uh, this is to be characteristic of your speech as a Christian. You're never given permission to speak corrupting words. That doesn't mean that you can never say hard words or challenging words or words of rebuke. Jesus did that on occasion when appropriate. But at the same time, Luke 4.22 tells us that the people marveled at Jesus. And why did they marvel? Uh, over, his, over his miracles? Well, sometimes they did, but not in, it, in this instance. In Luke 4.22, it says the people marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Proverbs 12.18 says the tongue of the wise brings healing. Does your tongue typically bring healing or hurting? On this point, John MacArthur gives a series of, of challenges. He says that our talk should be spiritually edifying, spiritually positive, spiritually strengthening, spiritually building them up. Uh, is that what happens when you talk, when you when you pass by someone and, 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 and they talk with you for a matter of a, of a few moments? Do they go away built up in Jesus Christ? Do they go away edified in Christ? And MacArthur goes on to say, and all around the house during the day, mom, when you're with the kids, is what you say, that which edifies and builds them up. Dads, when you take your sons out, you talk to them, is what's, what's happening, edifying and building and strengthening and encouraging to them. Those are, those are great challenges. And what Paul is, is doing here is that he's painting a vision, not just for the individual Christian, but for the local church collectively. We as a church are to be a community that, in our dealings with one another, we are to look different than the community out there in the world. Let me ask you this. How would you, how would you like to be a part of a church that was consistently avoiding corrupt, hurtful speech and was consistently speaking words of encouragement and edification to one another? Spiritually positive things. How would you like to be a part of a church where everyone was always building one another up with their words, where no one ever tore anyone down or grumbled or complained about other members behind their backs? Where the membership of the church was characterized by a people who spoke words of healing, words that uphold the stumbling, words that make firm the feeble knees. Wouldn't you love to be a part of a church like that? And you're saying, yeah, Deemer, sign me up. Well, well, here's the rub. Harbin's Church, with the strength and grace of God working in us, you know what? We can get closer and closer to being that church ourselves. You can play, you can play a key role in making us that kind of church as you put off the old garments of corrupting talk, but not just do that, but also put on the beautiful new clothes of gracious speech. Then Paul says something very interesting in verse 30. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force and an impersonal power. The Holy Spirit is a person. He can be grieved. He can, be, he can have sorrow. And when the church of God does not put off the old clothes and neglects its new clothes, when the church descends into lying and anger and corrupt talk, that kind of behavior grieves the Holy Spirit. And then moving on in the chapter, Paul gives a host of additional things to put off in, in verse 31. 
that really could be summed up in the exhortation to put off hostility. That's my next point. Put off hostility. Paul says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, Paul has already touched on this to a degree in verses 26 and 27 when he dealt with anger. But he comes back to this again. Uh, it is as if Paul sees this as one of the biggest threats to the church. And here he gives various descriptions of the kind of hostile relational turmoil that can happen in a church. Bitterness, uh, he talks about, has to, that has to do with hard-hearted resentment. Wrath would be uncontrollable, angry outburst. Uh, 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 anger can refer to, to, to more of a beneath-the-surface animosity. Clamor is the yelling that can happen back and forth during an argument. Slander is evil speech that is abusive and defamatory. And the climax of Paul's list is malice. And much to my sorrow, over the years, I've seen these kinds of sins rear their ugly heads in church life. I've personally been on the receiving end of backbiting and slander and gossip and, and even being cussed out in anger in church situations. And, and there have been times in church life where my behavior hasn't been all that it should, should be. And Paul here is saying no more. No more of that way of relating. That's a worldly way of dealing with things. You're no longer of this world. You're to dress differently as sons and daughters of the king. I must say that, that I am so grateful that, that Harbin's church, by the grace of God, has been increasingly more and more putting those things off as the years go by. I praise God for that, and I, I challenge you as your pastor to continue to, to do so, to live in that way, and to be on guard against those things. But, but not only that, uh, don't forget to not, to, to not just put off, but also to put on. What are we to put on in this case? And this is my final my final point, put on kindness and forgiveness. Be kind to one another, verse 31 and 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, to put on forgiveness, we, we need to know what it is. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's helpful to know what it is not. Uh, forgiveness is not... Um, it, it's not not acknowledging that sin has happened and just turning a blind eye to it. Uh, forgiveness, forgiveness is not the absence of consequences. Uh, forgiveness is not saying that the sin was okay. Uh, forgiveness is not putting uh, forgiveness is is not putting up with abuse or criminal behavior. Forgiveness instead is, and and this definition here is is inspired by by Thomas Watson. Most of this is is him. Um, uh, forgiveness is striving against all thoughts of revenge. It's when we won't do the other person mischief, but wish well to them and grieve at their calamities and pray for them and when possible, seek reconciliation with them and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. And Paul here doesn't just say forgive one another. I mean, that would have been great if that was all he said, but he he kind of, he ups the ante here. He says, Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Hmm. Well, you may ask, okay, but, but what if this person just keeps letting me down over and over and over again and making the same dumb mistakes 
over and over again. You, you mean to tell me that I just keep on forgiving them? That's not what I'm telling you. That's what Jesus is telling you. In Matthew 18, Peter comes up to Jesus and, and asks him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And now, now Peter thought that he was being really generous there with seven times. But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or I'm sorry, but yeah, 70 times, seven times. And, 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 and he, he doesn't mean there um, 490 times. Uh, you're not you're not supposed to be sitting there keeping count 488 uh, 489 all right one more time he's got one more chance and then after that I'm done I, I'm, I'm done with him that, that, that's not the point uh, goodness gracious do, do you really think God has forgiven you only 490 times you don't think you've sinned 491 times I know I've sinned way more than that in my life and yet, how does, how does God treat me? He forgives, and 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 on and on and on it goes. And Paul says, forgive one another in the same way God has forgiven you. Keep forgiving. You know how many church splits just that principle right there alone would prevent? And how many marriages would be saved? Now, what's the key to forgiving in this way? I know it's really hard to do, but what's what's the key? What 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 is the did Jesus give us some help here in and in, in how to have this mindset of, of, of long suffering, patient forgiveness? Well, right after Jesus shocks Peter and tells him that you need to keep on forgiving 70 times 7, Jesus then shows him why. And he goes on to tell a story of a servant. This is in Matthew 18. He tells a story of a servant who owned an incalculable debt to his master. Let's just say it's billions of dollars in our money. And he pleads with his master for mercy. And amazingly, the master forgives him. But then, later on, this same forgiven servant found a fellow servant who owed him just a few dollars. And despite this other man's plea for mercy, the first servant seizes him and chokes him and demands payment now. And the servant begs for more time to pay back, but the man doesn't relent and throws uh, the other servant in jail. And do you remember what the master's reaction was? He said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. Now, what's the point? The point is the servant had been forgiven by the master in incalculable debt. And all that debt was wiped clean in one amazing act of tender-hearted kindness. And yet when someone owed him just a tiny amount of money and begged for mercy, he viciously came after the guy. Jesus says this is incredibly wicked and hypocritical. Now, think about your own life and the debt that you owed God, Christian brother, Christian sister. It wasn't a few billion dollars. 
The dead instead was infinite. Christian brother, Christian sister, never forget who you were. And did not Paul remind us back uh, back in uh, verses 17 through 19 in this chapter? Sh shall, I, shall I remind us again? You hated God. You had a hardened heart. You walked in the futility of your mind and plunged yourself into sin with a continual lust for more. And yet after spitting in God's face and sinning against him and offending him over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, God sends Jesus into the world to take your debt upon himself through his death on the cross. So that when you believed in Jesus, when you pled with him for mercy to forgive that debt, guess what happened? You were totally forgiven. And so now when another comes to you wanting your forgiveness and pleading for your mercy, will you be so wicked as to withhold that? Considering that the debt you owed God far surpassed any debt that anyone has towards you. But friends, God has shown you a more excellent way. Here in verse 32, Paul has taken you to a most amazing part of the divine wardrobe, has he not? Remember your purpose. Remember why God saved you. It's not simply for rescue from hell and a ticket to heaven. He saved you so that you might be far more beautiful than you ever were before, that you might be, as verse 24 says, created after the likeness of God. And if you really want to look like God, if you really want to radiate and reflect something of his magnificent glory and show yourself to be a son or daughter of the Father, one of the greatest, most godlike things you can do is to forgive. And to the degree that it is possible with you, pursue peace and reconciliation. Why? Because that is exactly what God did for you. Now, if you're watching this, as an unbeliever, the most important thing you can do right now is turn to Christ and receive him and experience that forgiveness that I'm talking about. If you're watching this as a believer, and most, uh, I'm assuming most people tuning in right now are believers, the most important thing you can do is to reflect on and apply the things that we've been learning these past few weeks in Ephesians chapter 4. You were saved from an old way of life. And you've been graciously given a new life. You've been given a new identity, a new reason for living, and you've been given new clothes. So be about the business of casting off the filthy rags, the filthy rags of, of, of lying, of resentful anger, of stealing, of evil speech, of clamor, of malice, of bitter hard-heartedness, and put on the brilliant, clean, shining remnant of truthfulness, of reconciliation, of gracious words, of tender-hearted kindness, of forgiveness. This is who you are now, so embrace it and be it for your own sake, for the sake of your family, for the sake of your church and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, thank you, thank you for your holy and inspired and convicting and healing word. 
I pray that this word that has been preached by a massively flawed preacher would go forth and do its work because the word is perfect even when the messenger is not. And so may your word do a good work in all of our hearts and bring about incredible transformation and an increasing faithfulness and putting off the things that need to be put off and cast aside and putting on those things that make us look beautiful because they make us look just like Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.